no witty intros, uh, no um, reading from the text this time, because this is, of course, a, a, a very important interview. Uh, we have with us the co-directors, or the organizers, however you want to describe them, of the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. We have Brian and Gwen Callahan. Thank you two uh, so much for uh, joining us today. Thanks, Thanks for having us. So, um, I guess uh, so many questions I want to ask, because this has been... The festival uh, has been something that I've been fascinated with for years. So I guess, why don't we start with, I guess, just your story? Did Because I know you two have been uh, happily married for a long time. Was the Did the festival come first and then that's how you two kind of got together? Or did you two get together and then the festival was something that kind of stemmed from that? <laughs> uh, well, we've been, we've been married, I guess this is our uh, 21st. So we've been married for 21 years. Um so yeah, the festival didn't come first, but the um, well, it came first, uh, but we weren't in charge of it back then. Uh, we uh, at the time uh, we we got married in San Diego, and then shortly after that, moved to New Orleans, uh, where we lived for uh, uh, the better part of a decade through Hurricane Katrina and all of that stuff. And uh, then we 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 eventually in 2010 we moved here to Portland, Oregon. Uh, but even when we were in New Orleans, we were coming out to vend T-shirts. We uh, we also make uh, design and print Lovecraftian T-shirts. Uh, we were coming out as vendors to the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, uh, which our good friend uh, Andrew Migliori founded back in uh, 1985. Hmm. So we'd been going to that since 2002. Uh, so finally, eight years later, in 2010, we moved to Portland, and Andrew was ready to, to uh, move on. Uh, he had family and work obligations, and he was basically going to put an end to the festival uh, if he couldn't get relief. So we uh, we stepped in, uh, or just to say we stepped in is, is pretty liberal. He more or less <laughs> threw it at us and then, and then closed the door <laughs> in our faces to, uh, to basically, I, rem I remember the night he basically said, we were like, oh, well, we'll help you with it however you want to. I think we had had dinner with him or something. We were leaving his house. So we'll we'll help you however um, you want to to make sure the festival can keep going and everything. And he went, yeah, yeah, that's great. Well, I think if you guys want to just take it over completely, then it can keep going. So have a good night. He closed the door. <laughs> wow. Was that something that you had to meditate on a bit? Or was it sort of like, yeah, we, we should do this? He had been softening us up for yeah, a, a yeah. couple of years before that. Um, so Katrina happened in 2005. And uh, at that time, we came up to the festival right after. And um, he had said, hey, why don't you guys move up here? We can start a collective and like you can help me run the festival and all that stuff. And I was like, no, I'm not ready to leave New Orleans. <laughs> I have to go back and rebuild it. And then um, what did it take? Five years. <laughs> Five years to pry me out of there. But yeah. Um, so yeah, we kind of he had planted that seed already. Yeah. And um, but you know we we never know how serious people are about things sometimes because Brian is quite literal and if you tell him something he takes it very literally and I am more of a people say things all the time <laughs> that don't happen or they don't really mean so um, so yeah but my brother lives lives here or lived here in Portland from. Gosh, I think like 1994 or 1993. And so he is the one that told us about the festival. He was like, hey, there's an H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival here in, in Oregon. You guys should come and like come and check it out or sell your T-shirts and stuff. 
And so that's kind of how we um, were introduced to it. We actually contacted Andrew about vending and didn't hear from him from for like weeks. And um, we had contacted him like early, early in the year. And the way these things goes with festivals, like we were not, we were used to going to conventions where everything gets planned like a year in advance. Mm-hmm. And like at the convention, they already know like next year who's vending and like what dates are and all that stuff. Film festivals, a little bit different animal, actually a lot different animal. <laughs> um, so I think, I think we finally heard from him in like August or something. Yeah. It was enough time for us to make travel plans. So he was like, yeah, we'll you know, have a table. Yeah. And we didn't realize that it was like in a movie theater lobby. So that was <laughs> interesting. Yeah. That was an interesting thing. So we've been used to, you know, sort of convention center or like hotel ballroom sort of events. Um, so it was it was very very unique to come into the Hollywood theater, and uh, I don't know if you guys have you guys been in the Hollywood theater. No, no. it's um, um, it's a very very strange sort of non Euclidean shape. You know, it's <laughs> uh, uh, there's a ramp that goes up to the second floor, so it's a large theater. It's it's the nearly the largest one in Portland, um, and it's the only one that play that has you know they play not just digital film but they play 16 millimeter all the way up to 70 millimeter movies. Wow. Um, yeah. So they're, and they're a nonprofit, uh, wonderful, wonderful venue. Uh, but yeah, the first time we saw it back then, that was before they put, they did a bunch of restorations. Mm-hmm. So um, it was, to put it kindly, a little rundown. <laughs> that is kind. <laughs> there was another word I was going to use. I chose not to. Um, there was a urinal in the men's bathroom that, that didn't work for uh, 13 years or something like that. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. True, truly Lovecraftian horror uh, at its uh, finest. Covered, covered with, you know, like a black garbage bag. Oh, of course. <laughs> so, but, but it's now it's, it's, it's an absolutely astounding, historic, you know, fully restored theater. Uh, just just a beautiful venue uh, but it is weird it's shaped weird it's got you know the floor has all these weird curves in it and um, to sort of we kind of showed up or like oh we're setting up here you know and set up our table and sold everything and that's sort of how we became part of the family and that's the way that Andrew Migliori ran it was that you know sort of if you're here you're part of the family and it really is a um, for an event that is very that is very successful and is I, I think by film festival terms pretty large, <laughs> um, it's um, for being a niche festival too. Um, it really I think that's the overriding thing that we hear and the thing we strive for still is to kind of create this this family between both the you know the the vendors and the guests, um, you know the authors and the filmmakers as well as the the fans. Uh, we know many of them personally on a daily basis and it's it's gratifying it really does when it comes around that's one of one of the reasons why we felt it was important not to cancel or postpone Mm -hmm. the festival this year uh because we it really it's it's not just something we look forward to every year uh but it's something that you know we hear from people that you know they don't know what they would do without it like it's their it's their thing it's their thing every year that they've got and uh, we didn't want to take that away just because of the stupid virus you know <laughs> well there's, there's fans that come from all over the country um not a ton of them but a, a good solid 
consistent handful that come from like Texas and New York and mm-hmm. Rhode Island and Massachusetts and Chicago, and Boston, Florida, Boston, um, Colorado, Arizona, California, lots in Portland. But um, so, and some of them tell us like we, they put in their vacation request, like when they get home from this year's <laughs> festival, they'll put in their <laughs> vacation request for next year's festival. And they'd say it's like absolutely the one vacation they look forward to every year. And then, and part of that is because they know they're going to see all the people they've met through over the over the years, and like keep touch with online, get to see them in person, and hang out and have a beer and watch some movies and talk about them yeah. in person. And it's funny that you you mention or or you call it a, a niche festival because it's it, it is, but at the same time, something that James and I have discussed a lot, and that has been discussed online a lot, is how. Lovecraft and his influence seems to be growing and catching on in popular culture. I mean, not just, you know, with Richard Stanley and the Colorado Space kind of, it wasn't a mainstream success by any means, but it was still a theatrically released, like, you know, with name recognition and now Lovecraft Country on on HBO, which, you know, you can philosophically debate whether that's Lovecraft or not. That's that's a different topic for a different time. But have you been noticing as as time is going by that this, that, the festival is attracting more people or an international flavor or how have you seen his influence kind of growing in the work that you guys are doing? We think that's certainly true to an extent, right? That, um, I mean, his influence is undeniable, um, Mm -hmm. on, on horror literature and horror film. Um, very often his name is not that widespread. Uh, we find that people know about Cthulhu when they don't know about HP Lovecraft. Um, at the same time, I mean, this certainly when there are large when there are larger profile movies, I would say, you know, b- back in the '80s, of course, we had uh, uh, the late Stuart Gordon's uh, movies like Reanimator and From Beyond and Castle Freak, but they um, and, and in before that, you know, Roger Corman's films, you know, like The Haunted Palace, <laughs> uh, the case of Charles Dexter Ward, but those were very much sort of B movie fare that you weren't going to see everywhere i think that richard stanley's color out of space this last year made really quite an impression i mean i think as you said maybe not a mainstream success uh but certainly is a film that i think has gotten people's attention more than you know say reanimator did um, although reanimator i think picked up a lot of steam by becoming a cult classic and that's mm-hmm. it's a movie people are still discovering today you know yeah um, but, uh, boy, you know, color out of space, that was big. Mm-hmm. It was big. And yeah, we were, we were super, super stoked to, uh, <laughs> uh, last year to have Richard out. Uh, we actually know him fairly well now we've had, we've, uh, had him at the festival or at other events we've done, um, uh, four times. Oh, wow. And, uh, including the San Pedro festival. And, um, uh, you know, he's uh, stayed in our house. <laughs> uh, Humble and, brags, uh, Larry. <laughs> he's a super, super cool guy. And when he when he first came out in 2013, uh, we brought him out. I, we brought him out just because um, I am a super fan of his work. And this is a guy who only at the time had two uh, narrative feature films. You know, mm-hmm. he had to Hardware and Dust Devil. And at some point in, in 2013, I realized, you know, Jesus, you know, we run this festival. I can invite whoever I want to invite to this thing, you know. And <laughs> I, I basically found a way. And he, he had a short film called Mother of Toads uh, based on uh, a story by Clark Ashton Smith. 
mm. uh, which was a Lovecraft contemporary. So I kind of used that as my excuse to ask him to come out and be a guest of, uh, at the festival because because I wanted to meet him. And uh, uh, and uh, at first he said, you know, he couldn't do it because his mother was having health problems. But then he came back to me the next day and basically said, you know what, I'd really like to do this. And it was became clear in our correspondence that he was a serious Lovecraftian. Like he he signed his emails the way Lovecraft signed his letters, like with the same phrases <laughs> at the end. Um, uh, and he was, you know, he he could talk very intelligently, not just about Lovecraft, but Clark Ashton Smith and Arthur Macon and M.R. James. And uh, I didn't realize that at all. I didn't realize that he was really a Lovecraft guy until I started corresponding with him about the festival. I just knew I liked his films. <laughs> um, and so when he came out, we really, you know, the audience loved him. We loved him. Um, he's become really one of our favorite people in the world, I think. And he lives a cool, mystical, magical lifestyle in the in the hills of, of Montségur, France. Um, and then and knows his stuff like crazy. And at the end of the festival in 2013, he said, "Well, I'm a little embarrassed. You've brought me out here for this 15-minute movie I made. You know, you've flown me from France and everything." And he said, "Next time." You know, next time I'll try to have, next time I'll try to have a real, like a movie, an actual Lovecraft adaptation. And he told us that he had a script for Color Out of Space, and that was the first that we'd heard about it. Wow. And uh, and so he really came through. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, he came out, and uh, you know, we we had him out, and we showed uh, Color Out of Space three times, uh, all standing room only. Wow. Uh, uh, to the crowd and all with the uh, standing ovations. Mm. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. And I, I think that helped to get back to the point. I think that helped crack it open a little bit. Uh, certainly HBO's Lovecraft country because Lovecraft is right in the name. Mm -hmm. I think it's helping people to discover Lovecraft. Uh, it's certainly bringing a lot of scrutiny to, uh, to his, uh, racism, uh, which is, uh, we choose to look at that as a positive, you know, we, we, you know, you got to look at your idols, you know, with eyes wide open, you know, mm. and uh, to have to have that discussion, we think is fruitful, you know, because we believe that he is an important literary figure. Um, and while, you know, a lot of fans, I think, would prefer that his letters with all of his racist sentiments were maybe not as public as they are, uh, we think it's helpful to, from a historical point of view and as you know, as a way to look at our modern day, because we're still battling some of those things today, um, to kind of look back at this generation of Americans um, who were living through legal segregation, like the Jim Crow laws, and Lovecraft Country does a great job of, of, of sort of highlighting that time period. Uh, well, it's later; it's later than Lovecraft's time, but sure. the Jim Crow laws were still in effect because you know Americans back then were happy to have them there until the 1960s you know um <laughs> it's a difficult subject you know yeah. and it's a it's one we've been thinking about a lot because you know here in portland we've got uh we've had over 100 days of uh, black lives matter protests downtown mm -hmm. which has got to be some kind of record yeah. right and it's interesting that people are um people's reactions to the Black Lives Matters protest and like, there's no racism in America, everything's fine. And I think a lot of that is because we haven't really Had that healed any of the trauma yeah. from mm -hmm. 
the, the way things were so racist and so stacked against people of color before. And I think until we were all, as a society, work through that, we can't really move forward as well. I have one more, uh, not one more question, but another question. And then after that, I, I'll hand it over to James. I don't want to be dominating this conversation entirely. But we've talked about, you know, Lovecraft now, uh, his influence, but also his his problematic past and so I, I wanted to get an idea of both of you as to what what started the the infatuation or the 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 kind of connection with Lovecraft's work for both of you was it a film was it story but what was it that you you saw for the first time like oh I think I think this is going to be my thing did, did I did, did I do that for you did I bring um, Lovecraft <laughs> so the first, I saw a reanimator at my after my junior prom um, I went to high school. I'm old. Um, it was like 1990, <laughs> my junior year. Um, sure. We so we went to the junior prom. We went, all went over to a friend's house afterwards, and we're like, "Let's watch a movie." And he put in Reanimator. And I remember, um, you know, there had been some parking lot drinking, and <laughs> I remember like laying on the couch watching the opening credits and like the. Charles Richard Band's amazing soundtrack and like the all little animated things and thinking wow this is really artsy and cool and then the movie started and I was like this is not what I thought it was going to be <laughs> and uh, I remember um trying to wrap my head around like what am I watching because I had seen horror movies I like normal traditional horror movies but I'd never seen anything this like wacky and I, I really liked it but I was kind of like I don't I don't what I don't know what I just watched that was kind of good but whatever and then I didn't really think about it too hard until I think we got married and we started you started reading me Lovecraft stories before bed yeah, yeah. <laughs> which which is arguably not the best way to go to bed but, uh... <laughs> well it took us like two weeks to get through the shunned house because he would get through a page and I'd be <laughs> he would start falling asleep while he was reading it there, there are a lot of factors that make it not great for bedtime reading i mean <laughs> one i mean it perhaps could be too scary uh perhaps um uh, or, or keep you up at night thinking about the cosmicism you know of the whole thing um or, it could, or his archaic language could just lull you into a, a nice nice slumber uh but the th one of the things i love about lovecraft stories i've always i've always loved is the way they're sort of, the way they're sort of mathematically devised to create these feelings. You know, there's always this, you know, if you back up from the very end of the story, the climax is always this, this sharp, sharp point of a climax where he runs, you know, adjectives together into sort of this sort of, you know, ceaseless march of of, of word soup, right? Um, you know, a, a a nightmarish saraband of eldritch horror you know, from the shadow over Innsmouth, right? <laughs> um, and it creates this, when you're reading it out loud, it creates these 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 really incredible sensations you don't get when you're just reading it to yourself. Um, so I've always thought reading Lovecraft aloud is, is great, but um, I, I came to Lovecraft, I think I was about 14 or so. Um, I was definitely a, a reader kid, you know, I read everything and... Uh, uh, much more than I do now. I mean, now I'm lucky if I make it through two or three books in a year. But uh, when I was 14, I was constantly had my nose in a book. And uh, I remember just running. I I had a, an anthology that a uh, 
a teacher had given to a junior high teacher had given to me called uh, Literature of the Supernatural. And it had stories by uh, like Ray Bradbury was in there. Um, and there was a Lovecraft story, which is uh, not usually considered his best. It's uh, in the vault. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, one about the mortician who cuts off people. Oh, spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> cuts off people, corpses, legs to fit them in coffin and to fit them in shorter coffins. Um, and it's a very pole-like story. So it's not actually a great entry point to Lovecraft because it's not super representative of his work. But um, that was the first one I read and I started to recognize his name. So then I, I remember being at Walden Books, which was a book chain at that time. Uh, I remember Walden Books, yeah. And they had those uh, awesome uh, Del Rey paperbacks with the Michael Whelan covers, which were sort of the gray covers. Usually there was a splash of red, but sort of this gray painted cover and this sort of 70s white text that said, you know, H.P. Lovecraft was uh, Tales of Imagination or something like that, or Bone Chilling Tales of the, of, of the Imagination. And uh, I picked up one of those and then I picked up all of them on my next trip and read through them. And I remember, I remember at my high school, leaning against a wall, reading one of these. And a friend of mine came up and, oh, I didn't know you were a Lovecraft fan. I said, oh, well, yeah. I mean, I just, I kind of just started getting into him. And he said, well, I've got this, I've got this movie you should see. Mm -hmm. And uh, the next day, he brought me like a taped off of like HBO or Showtime or Cinemax or something, uh, VHS tape of. Uh, I think it was I think it was from Beyond, but it makes the time makes more sense if it's Reanimator. So, so that's a little fuzzy to me. I feel like it was from Beyond was the first one I saw, and then I saw Reanimator. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, he brought that to me, and it was one of these things where it, like he had started taping it late, so the beginning of the movie was cut off. Uh, oh, I guess it was I guess it was Reanimator because. I remember for a long time, I never saw the opening sequence with the doctor where his eyes blow out. Yeah. It started with uh, Herbert and, uh, and uh, Dan in the classroom. Basically. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, which is so I didn't have the benefit of the titles and things like that that went in. And then, so there was that, and I watched that, and I was even more hooked. Although at the time, I had not read H.P. Lovecraft again. Uh, because that wasn't one that was in all of the collections. That that was a little harder to actually get your hands on back then. Um, so I was like, well, this is weird. This doesn't seem like the kind of story that Lovecraft wrote. <laughs> but he really did. He really did. When I finally read it, I went in thinking, well, Stuart Gordon just did. He made a crazy movie from something that was probably very staid and conservative. And uh, not true. H.P. Lovecraft Reanimator is a hell of a ride of a story. It's foolish and crazy and bloody, and there are definitely... Talking heads and, and, and humor <laughs> and humor. Uh, I think it was written as a serial that was published, you know, in parts. Uh, I highly recommend it. And it's very weird for Lovecraft. It's a very kind of strangely not Lovecraftian story for him. But um, then right about at the same time that I was seeing that movie and had been reading these Del Rey paperbacks, um, I was also the, uh, president it wasn't important but I, it wasn't an important title but i was the president of the uh role-playing club at, at at my high school and uh one of the other guy one of the other guys or a member of the club said well we've been playing D, D for a while what do you think about playing this game called call of cthulhu and i i was like wait a minute 
Is that like H.P. Lovecraft's Call of Cthulhu? <laughs> <laughs> I had never heard of it before. And so it all, we started playing it. And after that, I was like, fuck d and I'm not playing that anymore, ever. Like, I don't, I don't see the point when there's when there's the Call of Cthulhu to play. <laughs> and uh, so we, uh, um, it all happened for me kind of, it was almost one week. It was like, I kind of had a slow ramp up to being like, oh, I'm going to buy books by this guy. But then as soon as I was reading a book by this guy, people came at me with movies and games, like all at the same time. And so at that point I was like, well, I guess we're just doing this. And, you know, that was a long time ago. <laughs> I see, I was 14. I'm now 49. So, you know, do the math. It's, uh, I've been a pretty solidly, solid H.P. Lovecraft fan since then. I read everything and I read, you know, uh, biographies and, and critical essays and all of that too. I'm a pretty, pretty fanny fan. Pretty fanny. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it is funny how most people are aware of his influence without being aware of him. It's something we brought up in the, the pilot episode of this show was just, I mean, when I was a kid coming home from school, I loved watching Batman, the animated series, and it didn't even occur to me that Arkham Institute, like, where do you think Arkham came from? Like, that wasn't a creation of the Batman comics, I can tell you that much. But, um, yeah, James, uh, t take it away from me so that I don't just keep rambling on here. Well, I like when you ramble, but I was going to circle back to the uh, to the festival and, like, how, you know, you got to meet, you know, Richard Stanley, which I'm so jealous because also super fan of Richard Stanley, like, Dust Devil Alone is just, and his his documentaries are great too. That's that's what's like I love about this guy. So that he's getting to make movies again, and luckily it's not like from the documentary where we see what he made Island of Doctor Moreau and how he got screwed over with that whole <laughs> production. And he, like I think we talked about on that episode when we were at the Draft House, Jim, where I was like, yeah, and he actually snuck onto the set as as a mutated like animal man just so he could curse the production I, I i love that about the guy but um um besides besides richard stanley though through the years that you've been doing the festival like any other filmmakers or authors that possibly were on your radar but then once you got, either got to meet them or see a film or read a book of theirs that you're like oh wow this person's like they're re they really know their stuff as opposed to like maybe someone like that you know is into lovecraft and like tries to you know, make a make a movie based on one of the stories that they fell in love. But like someone that's like, you know, you would you would quote unquote like a Richard Stanley scholar. Like, okay, I'm a scholar of Lovecraft, and that's like what they live by that you've met over the years. Um, well, let me let me say another word about Richard Stanley here, which is that um, yes. we had him. You, you mentioned the documentary Lost Soul. Uh, yes. We we actually had him out here for a showing of that at the Hollywood Theater. Oh, nice. uh, we showed. Lost Soul, and then we also showed his documentary, um, The Other World. The Other World. Mm -hmm. I always, she always says it for me because I always say, I always want to say The Underworld for some reason. <laughs> the Other World, which is a, also a great documentary uh, uh, about the occult influences and the spiritual energy of the area he lives in. Mm -hmm. um, it's really cool, and it also uh, introduces you to uh, a friend of his, uh, the uh, the late uh, Yurani which was a, a sorcerer of Yaxathoth uh, that lived in the same town as Richard. And uh, uh, yeah, every, every year he had Yaxathoth day where they would attempt to, where Urani would attempt to open a portal to, to allow Yaxathoth entry. Oh. <laughs> or was it to close the portal? 
Uh, one. <laughs> it seems it seems bad if that portal is open. I don't. I'm just guessing. Uh, but the but but Yorani, when you see uh, Richard Stanley's color out of space, uh, the character of Ezra played by uh, Tommy Chan. Tommy Chan. Oh. Uh, is is loosely based on Yorani. You can and he's also dressed like him. So you see pictures of of Yorani. You'll see the 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 wardrobe for Tommy Chong in that movie is pretty much the same. And that's sort of an, an homage mm -hmm. to him. Uh, but but yeah, Lost Soul is a weird documentary because it really um, yeah. it really makes Richard look pretty kooky, um, and he's a little kooky. You know, he's 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 cool and interesting, and he you know he's a great storyteller. Uh, but you know, what, there was the producer in, in one of those clips that wouldn't. That basically was like you can't trust anybody that takes like six sugars in their coffee. He says this guy, this director came in. He's wearing a white suit. He took six sugars in his asked for six sugars in his coffee. You can't trust somebody like that. <laughs> right? And when we had Richard out for the Q and A, the first thing when he he got up on stage, he said, "Before I take any questions, yeah. I want to let everybody know I've never had six sugars in my coffee." <laughs> I don't know where he got that from. He didn't dispute any, anything else in the rest of the documentaries. <laughs> I did not have six stickers in my coffee. I definitely did use witchcraft to uh, to uh, help the production stay safe, and I definitely did sneak back onto the set, you know, in costume. I, I hung out at trees watching the production to make sure that they were treating my actors right. He said because you know I'd made a promise to all of these people, you know, so I wasn't just gonna, you know, just because I was fired, I wasn't just gonna leave. Yeah, at the at the festival, we definitely you know every every year we have really great, uh, really great, really knowledgeable guests. I think one of the people, which is not a filmmaker, one of the people that we've uh, that we met actually, I met him at a, I was on a panel with him about Lovecraft at uh, Dragon God in uh, Atlanta. Gosh, that was a long time oh ago gosh. now, but um, he was sitting next to me, and it was clear to me that he was he was the guy with all the answers, and so. His name is uh, Ken Height, Kenneth Height. Uh, he wrote a book called uh, Cthulhu 101, another one called Tour de Cthulhu. Uh, and he's uh, he's written a bunch of supplements with uh, Pelgrade Press uh, for um, Trail. Trail of uh, Trail of, the Trail of Cthulhu game. Um, oh, okay. And so he's uh, he started, when we first met him, we kind of brought him out one year to be our guest of honor uh, to do a talk about... Um, like Margaret Murray's influence on Lovecraft uh, 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 with uh, the, uh, her witch cults of Western Europe uh, and about how like Lovecraft probably read that at the time and that helped inform his story, Dreams in the Witch House. And um, basically at the end of that show, he was like, yeah, this is really great. How does one get a gig just doing this every year? <laughs> Can you just, and I don't think he's missed a year yet. <laughs> So we, we bring him out, and I think here's, there's another guy that, like, if you have a question about Lovecraft or any of Lovecraft's contemporaries, it's all in there. He, he knows it. And if he doesn't know it, he'll definitely make it up. <laughs> uh, he, has a great, he has a great podcast. He does. Uh, uh, it's called uh, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. And it's uh, Ken Height and uh, Robin Laws. He's definitely a great pinch hitter. Like if yeah. I need a, an extra person on a panel and I always say, Hey Ken, can you be on this panel about blah, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah, sure. I know about that. Like, great. <laughs> and then uh, the other guy we've met through the festival that is, is always, and, and Ken is, Ken, Ken is always there for us. Whatever you need me to do, I'll introduce films. I'll 
do Q and A's. I'll be on any panel. So he's often on three or four panels. <laughs> um, uh, but the, the other guy that sort of came with the festival that we met when we first started coming, who is, is also the same way. And we rely on him a lot is a fellow named, uh, Adam Scott Glancy. And, uh, he writes, uh, he's one of the main authors on the uh, Delta green supplements. Uh, if you guys are familiar with the Delta, Delta green stuff for Call of Cthulhu, which kind of re takes the Call of Cthulhu game out of the 1920s and brings it into the modern day with automatic weapons and all of that kind of stuff. Government conspiracies. Government conspiracies. And, yeah. Um, and he's a, not only a great author, but he is, he's just a super knowledgeable guy that can talk about anything, super entertaining storyteller. Um, in fact, every year at the festival, uh, we have an event. Uh, it's sort of a breakout se se session or what they call a coffee clatch sometimes at conventions uh, that's called Scotch with Scott. Hmm. And uh, we basically, we get a bottle of Scotch and he sits there and, and uh, we're probably, I don't know if we're even allowed to talk about that, but he pours <laughs> drinks for everybody there. He, share, and they, he shares. He shares the, the Scotch and they, they, uh, they talk about um, uh, whatever. whatever. They talk about whatever games and books to. and movies. <laughs> yeah. It's, and it's, uh, it's a, always a full house with that because people want to hear his stories. Um, so yeah, he's, he's definitely somebody that's come to us as a, uh, like we're amateurs, you know, but like Ken and Scott, they're the pros. Well, we know stuff about Lovecraft. You arguably are much more knowledgeable about all of, all of the stories and things. And I've built up my knowledge over time and my lexicon of films is pretty good. Um, but what we're really good at is kind of finding the people that are the, the geniuses and scholars and um, know everything about Lovecraft and kind of bringing them in and putting them together uh, so that the audience has someone, uh, you know, authoritative to, to listen to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, other people we've discovered that are really great, like Robert Lloyd Perry, who's from England, who does uh, uh, M.R. James uh, performances. He does like one man shows. And uh, we didn't, uh, we we didn't, or I didn't, I wasn't that familiar with M.R. James. And uh, he really, but that's really his thing. And so like from watching his performances kind of caused me to read up on James and also read up on the relationship between Lovecraft and James, like the way that he, the way that he looked at the things he did and incorporated them, sort of that sense of the uncanny or the sense of something impinging on our world in a kind of naturalistic way um, into his own writing and how that really makes a lot of what we think of as uh, the uncanny in H.P. Lovecraft is his, is his admiration of the works of M.R. James. Um, uh, Scott Connors is a big Clark Ashton Smith guy, and I'm not sure I would know who Clark Ashton Smith was without Scott Connors. Uh, he's done a lot of great research um, with that um, in that field. And he's also been sort of a fixture of the festival for a long time. Um, was that the sort of question you were asking? Is that? <laughs> yeah, that, no, that, that, no, you've well, answered that's... it better than I could ever imagine. <laughs> well, we're always surprised too. It's funny we haven't talked about filmmakers. Yeah, we. Um, well, I mean, you assume filmmakers know about a little bit about Lovecraft, but I mean, Stuart was very, mm. very knowledgeable about Lovecraft and his history and uh, like his writings and all of his works and everything. Um, I pretty sure he read him ex extensively um, in preparation for all of the films that he made mm -hmm. and um, loved to talk to anyone about, about all that stuff. 
And Stuart, Stuart was a real hoot. He was, uh, uh, you know, you never know sometimes where you stand with guests, like what they, you know, if they're an older gentleman, you know, you don't know if they're going to be, you know, conservative or progressive or like what they're going to be. And like Stuart was just a cool hippie <laughs> dude, super progressive. I mean, if you've seen his movies, you know that he loves putting naked women in them. And, uh, <laughs> uh, but he was a, he was superbly feminist. Um, um, I don't know. Should I, should I steal Andrew's story about Stuart? So, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. he, well, he's not here to tell it, <laughs> right? So, I, Andrew Migliori, the, the founder of the festival, he um, um, he had a, a pitched an idea to do a film version of uh, the Temple, H.P. Uh, uh, Lovecraft's The Temple, and he had pitched it to Stuart, and Stuart read a script, and he said, "Yeah, that sounds really great." He's like, "My only probably problem I have is how do you get the women on the on the submarine?" He's like, well, there's there are no women in the script, Stuart. <laughs> like, well, yeah, but this, I mean, we're gonna make a movie. There's gotta be there's gotta be pretty women in it, you know. <laughs> and uh, I guess later he came back to him and said, Andrew, I figured out how to do it. So the boat that they shoot the the boat that the submarine shoots down at the beginning is actually a hospital boat. And so what they've done is they've taken on the survivors, which are all nurses, and that's that's how we'll get the women on there. And then there'll be then we can have, you know, we can have you know the all the stuff that we expect from a Stuart Gordon movie. Uh, I remember the first time I saw Dreams of the Witch House that he made for Masters of Horror. And I remember thinking, oh, this is weird. I haven't seen uh, any uh, topless women or anything like that yet. And then right around when I was thinking that is when like the dream sequence with the witch when she pulls open her thing. Yeah. Ah, there, there we go. Yep, there it is. Yep. <laughs> we, we, just, we just recently covered uh, Dreams in the Witch House because we... We, we were trying to, to get into non-filmic properties, so we did a TV episode, which was that, and then uh, Quest for Glory, uh, Shadows of Darkness for a computer game to kind of emphasize how his influence spread just beyond filmic adaptations. But I, since we are uh, on the topic of Stuart Gordon filmic stuff, I, I did, I have kind of a two-part question, um, which the first one, this is something James and I talk about on a, a, a regular basis with this, and is something which... Um, if you're like a, a member of the H.P. Lovecraft uh, Literary Society Facebook page, this is something which is rarely talked about, is, in your opinion, what makes a, a story or a film, uh, for your specific purposes, a Lovecraftian one? Because one of the things that James and I talk about a lot is um, a film may have the Lovecraft plot at the core of it, but doesn't seem to grasp what makes his story so effective. So I guess uh, <clears throat> the two-part thing is, is, in your opinion, what makes a what makes something Lovecraftian? And then uh, what do you see, I guess, um, filmmakers struggle with this or, or kind of one of the biggest mistakes that a lot of films make when trying to adapt a Lovecraft story? I probably have a more loose interpretation of what's Lovecraftian than some people do. Um, I know some people, they really require it to be sort of a Cthulhu mythos thing or, uh, or to be explicitly cosmic horror. Um, it's, it's, difficult though when you have a guy that wrote you know a story like sweet ermengarde you know which is not uh not what most people would consider lovecraftian it's also probably now if we had a really cool adaptation of sweet ermengarde we would definitely play it uh because it would be an hp lovecraft adaptation and a first <laughs> and a first <laughs> if, if filmmakers out there make an adaptation of sweet ermengarde uh, we've never seen one that's probably the only story we've never seen an adaptation of. Wow. um 
uh, stop making Pickman's model and statement of Randolph Carter and get, get to work on sweet Ermengarde. But the, um, so when you have a guy that wrote in so many different styles in which he himself idolized and paid homage to so many different authors, it's hard to really nail down like what is only Lovecraftian. You know, we prefer to take a more inclusive view, you know, so we, um, and as our friend Andrew says fairly frequently, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Um, you know, when I, there, I remember we were watching an episode of How I Met Your Mother, uh, and I was struck by how it was how it was sort of an adaptation of the music of Eric Zahn, uh, <laughs> but probably an unwitting one. Mm. And it's probably not. I'm sure that the writers had no idea what they were doing. But it, it it's it was it's it's the episode if anybody wants to look it up where they're trying to find the burger place. They had the best burger in the world when they first moved to New York. Oh and, yes, okay. And it has this, it has this, I never again could find the Rue d'Ossay sort of quality to it, right? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that's, you know, uh, when you're, when, when that inf- Lovecraft infection is in your brain, everything looks like it's been influenced by Lovecraft for right or wrong. Um, but when we look at, when we're looking at films, like when we're trying to find films to accept, one of our main reasons, uh, I mean, besides quality, um, issues for us to not select a film is whether or not it was Lovecraftian uh, or whether or not we think it's a fit. And that's not something that's easy for filmmakers. It's not easy for everybody to really know if their film fits, but when we're trying to figure it out, we look at, uh, we go back to the source material. We look back at H.P. Lovecraft's uh, primarily his supernatural horror and literature essay he, where he very sort of clearly says, this is what cosmic horror is. This is what the weird tale is. And these are the elements it should have, and he, where he references stories by all sorts of other authors. Uh, that makes us, that gives us both a limit in how to view what's Lovecraftian and what's not, the sort of the sense of the uncanny um, or the, uh, you know, uh, the issues of deep time or, unfettered space you know the uh he says at one point he uses the phrase the beating of you know must have the sense of the beating of black wings on the edge of our you know reality you know um but it also gives us a sort of an inclusiveness so now we're looking at authors like uh uh, uh manly wade wellman and uh robert H- or uh, H- william hope Hodgson, you know that he's referencing in there uh, as well as uh, authors like Nathaniel Hawthorne, you know, where he talks about the uncanny qualities of uh, House of the Seven Gables. Uh, so we actually, about two years ago, we played a great animated version of House of Seven Gables uh, because that was Lovecraft's favorite New England ghost story. <laughs> uh, so it both, I think, you know, when we, we try to look at it like that, so it both kind of limits us to think about how Lovecraft defined the genre literally in his own words like this is what the genre is but it also gives us a spring point to bring in all those other influences you know uh, to be a little more flexible uh, and not just play like you're just getting lovecraft adaptations this year you know by and large the films we play are not lovecraft adaptations that's a very very small percentage mm-hmm. of films that we select and often we don't even select you know often we we reject lovecraft adaptations because they're just not, 
they're just not up to it. You know, they're just not up to to the writing, and they're they're not up to the the standards that we have. You know, we do what we can. <laughs> uh, that's the the main goal of the festival is not to sort of say, "Here's a Lovecraft story on film." It's to say, "Here's here are films." Here are films that probably wouldn't exist if Lovecraft had not been in our world, mm-hmm. you know, and that's a much much wider uh, uh, selection of stuff. I mean, you can point at horror films coming out this year uh, that aren't adaptations, but which definitely needed Lovecraft in their genetic mix. Well, there was a second part to your question, right? Remind me. Um, common mistakes filmmakers make because I know James and I make uh, yes. make make a joke a lot that filmmakers will kind of be like, well, this is Lovecraftian because we've thrown a tentacle in there, and yet yeah. there there seems to be something missing at least when it comes to an existential or kind of emotional level, which I realize cosmic horror is difficult to depict visually because it is something which is so internal. Yeah, it really is hard to depict that moment when your mind flips over from what you know of every day and how you think the world works to the, that moment of realizing that I'm completely wrong. This is not how everything is. And everything is like uh, chaos and much bigger than I can handle. And that's um, usually the cause of Lovecraft's protagonists going insane because they're, they broke their little minds. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, like definitely throwing in a tentacle does not make it Lovecraftian. Throwing in some oh, kind unless, of unless, monster. Unless it's really funny. Yeah, true. Yeah. So it's really funny. <laughs> no. if, you make, if you make a really funny film with tentacles, like, you know, the chances of us playing it are pretty, are pretty great. <laughs> but, but yeah, if you're looking That's for okay. serious, you know, if you're making a serious film, uh, the inclusion of tentacles doesn't, doesn't really get you in with us. <laughs> Uh, people tend to lean on the um, mating with sea monster or sea creature mm-hmm. but without really having a larger understanding of like why that's horrifying in, in a Lovecraftian sense. Or why that was horrifying for Lovecraft right. himself. Yeah. And, yes. and so, um, I don't know, this year, mermaids are a big thing. Mermaids, like, yeah. You know, I think because of the... The, the lighthouse, lighthouse, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, mermaids... Because everybody keeps saying The Lighthouse is a Lovecraftian film, and so therefore filmmakers who've made mermaid films mm. are like, oh, that's mine, mine's a mermaid film, so it must be Lovecraftian, and that's, uh, that's turns right. out not, not usually true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're not saying that mermaid films can't be Lovecraftian, but they, there's definitely an element that they need to have of some kind of world world-shattering revelation. And I th- and I think that the the lighthouse, while it's a, I think it's a brilliant film, maybe gets a little too much credit for being Lovecraftian when it's, it's, maybe a little bit on the edge. It's a little borderline. Uh, I mean, if that had been submitted to our festival, we almost certainly would have played it uh, because it has this great mood, and I think that's part of that's sort of part of what Gwen was saying about common mistakes. Is I think that Lovecraft is all about mood. To think of him as a purely visual author, uh, or to try to try to think of his stories as if you're going to adapt them in a visual way, is not really even true to his stories. You know? yeah. uh, mostly, what he's doing is trying to create uh, create the sense of dread and create this mood. And the most effective films we've seen do that are the ones that leverage uh, great sound design. Mm. Uh, 
you know, because sound has such a has such an impact on you when you're watching a film. Mm-hmm. In in terms of creating, you think about films like uh, uh, David Lynch's uh, Razorhead, yeah, and that that droning, that droning, that by the time by the time a Razorhead is over, you're ready to run. Like it's one of the most uncomfortable film watching experiences, and it's because of that sound design, mm-hmm. uh, not just because of the weirdness on screen. That's almost a distraction. That that's almost you know, like David Lynch is saying, look over here. Meanwhile, he's operating on your brain with the sound design. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, it's sort of the, it's sort of a mobile over your crib while he changes the <laughs> diaper, you know, like it's a, <laughs> uh, profound, what he's doing with the sound design is profound. What he's doing with the visuals is just, he's just messing with you, right. you know. Uh, and I think that for, I think a lot of Lovecraftian films, the ones that work, really think about how the sound influences your, emotions um and also you know also lighting and you know how uh the environment you know uh, uh the open sea or the open sky or the cl- you know the uh, claustrophobic nature of uh being under the ground mm-hmm. uh, can create these feelings for you and it's really not about at all about being able to make a monster or a rubber tentacle or being able to even show cthulhu um Although I've always thought it's funny that there's this conceit that Lovecraft never described anything, that he always said, oh, it's impossible to describe. But then before he even takes another breath, he's telling you what it, exactly what it looks like. You know? <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to understand. Yeah, like Cthulhu. Like you got Cthulhu. When I say Cthulhu, you have an image in your head, and it's 90% the image I have in my head. And that's because Lovecraft despite saying it was indescribable, just went ahead and did it anyway. (laughs) Um, Some things he really tried to throw a wrench in it. You know, like if I say uh, be a key, uh, you have an image in your head and we probably have three different images in our head. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I I don't know, man, what is it? It's a decomposing human being. It's uh, an insect. It's a, a beast of burden, like an ox maybe. Uh, it has wings. I mean, what is it? Yeah. If you know, tell me, because I don't. I'll be <laughs> I've seen many, many depictions of it, and they're all different. And so there's an example of he just threw a bunch of stuff in there to say, like, this is, here's this thing, and you're not going to be able to, you're not going to be able to understand it, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, and I understand the the difficulty, too. I mean, what, one of the things that we all kind of agreed on for Dreams in the Witch House was we understand the limitations, specifically TV limitations when it comes to budget, but one of the things that I found the most interesting about that story was this world that our character would go to that was sort of like in between dimensions, and yet in this, the TV show, all we get is, we get a flash of purple and the witch is there, and like, I get it, but also, I want the weird stuff. Like, I, I want the stuff that my brain is like, okay, I don't know what this looks like, so I'm interested into what this filmmaker, what this artist... What did it look like to them, basically? I, like, I love that idea. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite, favorite stories. And I, I like the Stuart Gordon adaptation, but it really just captures just a little bit of it, you know? But yeah. that whole thing where they go... And lo- the way that Lovecraft does this thing, where he kind of recontextualizes the uh, things like uh, Salem witches, you mm. know? And says, you know, says, well, this, there's this witch, and she's not using... You know, it's not about magic, but she definitely made deals. You know, she made some sort of deal with uh, Nyarlathotep. And, uh, you know, there's that whole sequence in the story where where 
Gilman sees her travel to uh, another planet, a planet with two suns. And there she makes some sort of deal with uh, the elder things from at the mountains of madness. <laughs> um, and there's this thing like, Oh, she's getting her, what she's, she's not getting supernatural power. She's getting some sort of technology or mathematics or knowledge from these beings that, you know, when you come full circle without the mountains of madness, um, came to our planet and probably created humankind. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that they, um, they're these like scientists that are way beyond on a cosmic level. And, you know, here's a, here's a, a lone witch doing a deal with them probably for some sort of, you know, intelligence or scientific power, you know? Uh, and I think that's a lot, that's one of the things I think Lovecraft fans really dig about him is he's like, yeah, there's witches in my stories, but not the witches that you're thinking of. You know, <laughs> They're sea monsters, but they're really, you know, giant, you know, the Colossus aliens from another planet that have been there since before humankind, you know? Mm. And like his exploitation of the idea of deep time and the sort of the limitless of space, limitlessness of space and its danger for us is so essential to kind of what makes us think when we think of cosmic horror. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if I'm going to be uh, laying awake at night thinking about something which is terrifying me, it's not about spiders or snakes or ghosts. It's more about like, if the universe did actually be created in the Big Bang, what what exists outside of the edge of that? That's the stuff that's going to keep me keep me awake at night. But also, that doesn't make the most interesting visual film. But certainly, when you have a story, you can kind of internalize that a bit more. But I guess we should probably hit a little bit on the festival. Uh, you had a, a a streaming iteration of it back in August, um, and you have a, a another uh, another streaming event coming up October first through October 4th. So talk a little bit about that in the sense of, I mean, anything about it, what, what you're excited about, how, I mean, this is the first time it's been entirely online because of the pandemic. So just anything that you want to highlight or just talk about by all means. Well, go ahead. Go. <laughs> um, when, when you're married for 21 years, you basically share a mouth. And share how great. <laughs> um, the festival this year, we, you know, we were kind of crossing our fingers, hoping we'd be back in the theater, but we kind of saw the writing on the wall as things were going along, and if everyone would just wear a mask, it's <laughs> not going to happen until people are bleeding out their... If this was a virus that made you bleed out your eyes, ears, nose, mouth, and butt, people <laughs> absolutely wearing a mask. Um, but, you know, it's too inconvenient. So, anyways, um, yeah. back in June... We also run Portland Horror Film Festival, and so we decided to take Portland Horror Film Festival online because at that time it was very clear that we weren't going to be in the theater at any any moment. And mm-hmm. we had these films that were submitted, and they were amazing, and we just thought it would be a real disservice to our fans and to the filmmakers who made all these films to postpone this or cancel it until we can be back in the theater because who, who knows when that's going to be. Um, so we decided to go online our local theater here, the Hollywood Theater, has um, had just kind of started playing with a streaming format um, their, through their ticketing platform, so it was kind of built in. And so we were like, hey, let's uh, let's try this out. And they agreed to kind of be, we were each other's guinea pigs, I guess. Like, uh, yeah. We can, they kind of tried it out and kind of saw how it worked. And doing that with them also helped us support the theater, which, of course, has been closed this whole time. Yeah. 
which to us was important, you know, because we not just because we want a venue when we come back, uh, because, you know, theaters are definitely going out of business around the country because yeah. of this pandemic. Um, uh, they're managing to hang in there. They are a nonprofit, so they've got grants and, and members and things like that. That was really important for us to be able to support them while they supported us. Yeah, so, you know, we, we got to have our festival. They got to have some streaming content and to provide something for their members as well. And um, they did, a, I guess they didn't do it for that, but they, they do like a concession pickup so you can order. They have like the best popcorn ever. Mm -hmm. cool. Like the big fat popcorn kernels, real butter, and like, and, yeah. In the, it. It's a thing. It's a thing here in Portland. Like, you know, every year there's the best movie, movie theater popcorn, like, contest. <laughs> you know, and they, the Hollywood always wins the, the best, the best of the city. Yeah. Um, so, so we went ahead with it, and um, it, it turned out to be pretty ambitious. Like, we normally, Portland Horror Film Festival takes place in the evening, which we mirror, we mirrored the actual physical festival. So we did evenings from like Wednesday through Sunday afternoon um, and played a ton of films, talked, did our Q and A's live. I think we talked to like 94 filmmakers during yeah. the course of that week. Yeah. And we talked to a couple of the, the horror icons that we know. So we talked to like Brian Usna and John Penny who did um, yes. Turn of the Living Dead 3 together. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, talk to Greg Hale and, and are both working on the upcoming Reanimator movie. Really? Oh, wow. Okay. And uh, uh, Greg <clears throat> Hale, who produced the Blair Witch Project, and he lives here in Portland. And uh, we had Brian Trenchard Smith as our guest bloody judge. Oh, uh, Brian, I love that guy. <laughs> he's he's kind of the best. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, it just we it showed us the feedback that we got from that, and just how many people joined in and like we had people in the chat window when the q a's were live and so we were like okay there's actually people out there watching us and they're paying attention um so this could work so we had been getting messages from people who are also Portland horror fans that are also hp lovecraft film festival fans asking you know, are you going to be in a theater? Is hp lovecraft film festival going to be online like portland horror and we're like we don't know yet we're going to do what we can, but we we had to kind of wait and see, um, and that was a hard thing because, you know, a film festival is not just a, a, a here you go, put a movie in the DVD player. It's There's a lot of coordination behind it, and it takes arguably more time than we usually have to, to put it together yeah. efficiently and effectively, and um, we, we basically came down to, like, we've got to just pull the trigger on doing it online, because we're not going to know if we can be back in the theater in time for that to actually happen. Um, and as it turns out, nothing's is not open yet. So yeah. So we're going online. <laughs> um, and one of one of the benefits of that is that we are able to have um, not all of the film programming, but a good portion of the film programming will be available to our fans um, around the world, so not outside the U.S. So a lot of it's going to be. Some of it's going to be geo-restricted to the U.S., so people in the U.S. will be able to see all the films, but then people in, you know, we've got a, a guy from Taiwan that comes every year, or a couple has come a He's few come years, twice, yeah. and somebody, like people in the U.K. and England, and um, we had some guys from Australia one year, mm -hmm. and if people come travel to this, because there isn't really anything else like it. And we get a lot of can Canadians, too, because we're in Portland, you know, we're sort of a six-hour drive from the west west side of Canada. Yeah. So those folks will be able to watch a good portion of the programming 
Uh, we're still going to have, we have a CthulhuCon portion of the festival where we do like panel discussions about literary things and filmmaking and art mm-hmm. and uh, author readings and presentations. So we're going to preserve some of that. It'll be more limited, but we're going to preserve some of that and present that online as well. Yeah. And we're actually waiting for Kickstarter to green light our project. Hopefully today. <laughs> it's Hopefully been today. three days. And, uh, we never know why they take this long. But sometimes, you know, we would submit it and it would say, okay, you're good to go. Like, like we would submit it and it would do some sort of automatic check and then give us the green light. Mm-hmm. But then about half the times it just takes three days. Yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. so we're, it's very late. This was one of the problems we knew going in is not knowing what was going to happen. And keep in mind, we're looking at the festival in October back in, you know, from like July. Mm-hmm. Right. And in July, it wasn't really clear if what's what phase our city would be in, um, if theaters could be open, if they would be open, but with a limited, uh, you know, limited capacity and social distancing. And if that's the case, we would still want to have the festival there mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, maybe just spread it over the course of a week or something like that to give more more people a chance. Right. But um you really like even a month ago, it was really hard to say like what's actually going to be happening. Even at the people at the theater are like, you know, yeah. we don't know. We don't know. They said, we don't think we're going to be open until sometime next year, but that could all change if the governor changes her mind. Yeah. Right. Um, although they'll definitely have some work to do before they can reopen. They have to reconfigure and they have to do a bunch of stuff to keep everybody safe because it's definitely not going to open at full capacity. Sure. I don't think any theater is going to do that, but um, it, um, but looking back at it, then one of, one of the things we would normally be doing is trying to launch our Kickstarter at the end of July or the beginning of August. Well, you can't start selling tickets unless you know if people are going to be sitting in person or if they're going to be watching at home, it's a completely different dynamic. And so, yeah, so we're basically only, normally we run this campaign for three weeks and we run it sort of in August and now we're, you know, <laughs> we're mm-hmm. like ten day campaign. Ten, ten day campaign. <laughs> yeah, they've always been very successful though, and it allows us to offer some cool exclusives. Uh, again, we hope it goes live today. Uh, but we have exclusive T-shirts and things. And but I think what Gwen was saying—that's the main message—is if you're a Lovecraft fan anywhere in the world, you can take part in the festival this year. You don't have to fly to Portland. Like, you really can't watch it at home in a browser you can cast it to your tv if you have some sort of casting device mm-hmm. uh, and it's not just watching movies like you said we've got panel discussions we also have two uh guests of honor this year uh you want to talk about that so i've been tra- i've been trying to get barbara crampton to the festival <gasps> i think since 2016 yeah um yeah, because 2016 was like the 30th anniversary from Beyond, and so right. I, I, my plan, my plan was to get Barbara and Stuart at the same time, mm-hmm. uh, but Barbara ended up having to be in Sitges that year for an award because she's had such a renaissance mm-hmm. lately. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she's been working. I mean, All she's in one or two movies every year yeah, now, and it's yeah. um, it's fantastic. She's so good. Um, she's yeah. just great to watch on the screen. I pretty much watch anything that she's in now. Yeah. Um, and she's also been producing um, her own project and developing that. Um, and I think that's I'm not sure when that's slated to come out. I don't think I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about any of that. So. Well, I think everybody knows that she was a producer on the 
the reboot of Castle Freak. Yeah. Yes. Right? Yes. Uh, yeah. Where she's where the idea is to create kind of a new Lovecraftian universe, mm-hmm. uh, cinematic Lovecraftian cinematic universe, if yeah. you will. So there, there seem to be some competing factions. There's Barbara's and uh, Fangoria's production. Yeah. And then uh, Richard Stanley and Spectra's. Uh, <laughs> You know, they're competing universes. Yeah. This could be a real renaissance. You know? <laughs> <laughs> It'll be like Marvel and DC. Yeah, I mean, Th- Thanos's snap really messed up everything for everyone, I think. So, <laughs> um, but because we're online this year, and as it as it turns out, um, we couldn't have her here in person anyway because of the pandemic. So, um, she's going to be talking with us and doing Q and A's and things online. Um, so she'll be participating that way. And then we also have, um, a literary guest every year because we have the Cthulhu Khan portion. And this year we're really excited. Um, Victor Laval has oh, fantastic. Us for a panel discussion and we'll, we'll do like a little author spotlight interview with him as well. Yeah. And for, for those that don't know him, he's a, uh, a world fantasy award winner and a, uh, British fantasy award winner and a Shirley Jackson award winner. Um, <laughs> all for his book, The Changeling. Uh, but he's also known in Lovecraft circles. He wrote a story called, or novella, called The Ballad of Black Tom, which is a, a, re, a reworking of uh, Lovecraft's uh, horror in Red Hook, mm-hmm. uh, which is generally considered his most racist story. <laughs> yeah. Uh, as a Lovecraft fan who have read and reread and reread and reread Lovecraft, um, I'm pretty sure I read Horror Red Hook when I was 14 and haven't read it since. Because even in my 14-year-old white self, I read it and went, whoa, dude. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it's, I'll be honest, I, I actually still to this day have not read it. And there's part of me, it's like, should I should I actually so that I can be part of the conversation or is it best left to just, you know, you know nah. I'm, and I'm not even sure where I where I land on that conversation, to be honest with you. Well, I think the best reason to read it now is so that you can read Victor Laval's yeah. uh, Out of Black Tom. Mm-hmm. And, uh, he, the, won't, he won't stop talking about it. He's like, it's so good. Like it's the, really neat, yeah. The imagery, <laughs> the characters, the storytelling is really fantastic. Well, and I think something you see, you know, we travel in a lot of Lovecraftian author circles. And uh, something you see, and, and uh, some really fantastic authors, um, you know, uh, the late Joe Pulver, he just passed away this year. Is wonderful and uh, um, Michael Cisco, John Langan. John Langan is Charlie, fantastic. Charlie Strauss is a guest. Yeah, Charles I, Strauss. Yeah. F. Paul Wilson was a guest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Mike Griffin is a wonderful writer. Um, but sometimes when you're reading, when you're trying, when you're a Lovecraft fan and you're trying to read more stuff like him, you end up running across stuff that is written like his stories are. That is, there's a certain amount of kind of archaicism um, in, in, in the writing or a little bit of pastiche. And you don't really realize what you're missing until you get out and you read cosmic horror by people that are really modern writing as modern authors and maybe coming in from the outside. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, like Matt Ruff's Lovecraft Country um, and Victor Laval's uh, Ballad of Black Tom, of course, both of those have been talked about a little bit recently. Um but something that's refreshing about both of them is they're just barnstorming, you know, fun adventure horror stories, and they they're real page turners, um, and they don't have they don't have that archaicism or, or um, those sort of qualities that, that we associate with the Lovecraft. They're very spare, 
Uh, they tell very good stories and very, very emotionally moving stories with well-developed characters mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that move right along. And b- both of both of those books are just super easy to just blow through in a weekend, you know. Oh, and Cody Goodfellow, like uh, Radiant Dawn, Radiant Dusk mm-hmm. series is a same kind of thing, very modern. Yep. Makes yeah. use of um, like some some military conspiracy and genetics and cults and um, kind of mashes all these things that you would expect to find maybe in a Lovecraft story, but makes it completely his own, makes it completely modern. It more or less follows on at the Mountains of Madness, but in the modern day. Mm. And yeah, if you guys haven't read Cody Goodfellow's uh, Radiant Dawn series, it is just utterly fantastic. It's, it does some really great, really crazy world-spanning stuff. Yeah, it's amazing work. Um, although that's old, that's like 1990 by today's standards. Yeah. That's that's old, <laughs> old book. He's still writing. He's still writing stuff now, um, and he's one of our frequent uh, collaborators on the on the festival. He lives up here in Portland as well. Uh, but um, yeah, so anyway, back to the festival. We're very very excited to have both Barbara and Victor Victor Laval being a part of the festival this year. What else? Uh, I mean, the important thing I know we've said this before is anybody in the world can watch it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Although people, because of the deals we're making with filmmakers, um, you know, the U S gets free reign. Everybody else gets sort of a limited selection, but still a great selection. still hours and hours and hours of film watching. Um, uh, But, but the main thing about there is that people internationally in order to get that international pass must back our Kickstarter. Uh, because of the uh, because of the deals we're making, like we can't just let sort of anybody buy tickets. There has to be a lot of accountability in terms of who's watching where, and we you know. So the best way for us to do that was to uh, make sure that you know, you know, you're a legit person. You can back a Kickstarter. You've got a credit card. You know, you've got. Um, you know, a shipping address that we can ship stuff to, you know, this is to all to sort of put the filmmakers at ease that uh, their films aren't going to be pirated. Yeah. Basically there's, there's a paper, there's a much more of a paper trail. Mm-hmm. And so that was, that was the decision basically. So that in order to, in order for an international uh, audience member to take part in the festival, they've got to do it through our Kickstarter. Right. And listeners, we will uh, be sure to include information. Well, there should be information in the show notes of this episode so that you can figure out how to get involved and how to stream. And then once this episode comes out, we'll post it on uh, our Facebook page as well so that you can uh, you can get involved and support it. Um, now, so this is something that I, I had been going uh, back and forth with James a little bit about and that I, I, I think I teased with Gwen, but I, you two have seen, I'm sure, a lot of Lovecraftian films in your time, both stuff which is available to people and stuff that you've been exposed to only in the festival. So I'm wondering if it's possible, whether it's both of you or, or each of you, the top three... Lovecraft adapt- cinematic adaptation that you've seen. Now, if it's stuff that's only available in the festival, obviously some of the listeners, or most of the listeners, will not be able to. But I'm just, I'm very curious, um, because I, one of the things that James and I have struggled with is one problem with uh, an author whose works are in the public domain, anyone can adapt them, whether it's a good idea or not. So a lot of the stuff that we can get our hands on, I mean, we love From Beyond, we, you know, we love The Color Out of Space, but then... You know, the, the two Dunwich Horror adaptations that are available are not great. Um, and some stuff is just uh, straight up bad. So 
Um, as someone who, as two people who have seen a lot of stuff and just kind of seen a whole swath, if you could nail down your top three that you've ever seen, what would those three be? Man, that's sort of a, right, that, will... that's sort of a, a what child. What child? child? <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna okay. shoot one of your kids. Uh, which one is it? I'll go first. Okay. Um, and like, and these are in no particular order, but I'm I'm gonna say the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society's Call of Cthulhu is yeah. one of the best, mm-hmm. straightforward, um, yeah. true to the source material, true to the feeling of the story of you know one of the best adaptations I've seen. Um, and I think some of that I think is actually because they had very little budget. Yeah. They filmed it over a very long period of time About and like in their backyard using cardboard boxes and garbage bags and like <laughs> things that they just kind of cobbled together and, um, you know, did it in black and white with that sepia toned old timey with the, the cards so that there's no um, dialogue that they had to deal with and matching matching sound and things like that. Yeah, one of the biggest problems we have when we're looking at film submissions is often sound is very hard to get on a low budget. Yeah. So yeah, they, mm-hmm. they solved that by not having it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, had a, they, have a, they had a fantastic composer, Tori Sterling Knees, is um, just a great composer. He works with them on a lot of their radio plays. Um, and it just really had that feeling, that look and feel of a 1920s, I guess 1929 film. 26? No, not 1926. Um, so they kind of tried to make it set in the year that it was written and uh, just did a phenomenal job with it. And it's a 40-minute film, but they really didn't bloat it. They didn't condense it too much. I think it really works just really well. The performers, they have access to a great stable of performers because of the theater company that they were involved in, Theater Banshee. And... Um, you know, they have a real love and respect for the source materials. I think they they were able to handle it really well. Um, and I think given the constraints that they were under, it looks really great. Like yeah, they yeah. did a little stop motion Cthulhu and um, mm-hmm. they did some, some minor compositing, but most of the things were practical effects. Yeah. And I, I know, and just if I can interject one thing, directed by Andrew Lehman, who I think runs the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. And if anyone has ever listened to the um, um, H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast, Andrew Lehman was a frequent guest. And to this day, if I'm reading a Lovecraft short story, it's his voice that I picture <laughs> in my head. He has got a, a wonderful voice for that kind of stuff. It's amazing. I love it. He really, he really does. And uh, yeah, Sean Branny and Andrew Lehman run the Historical Society together, which is, it's a great name. Nobody should, I mean, everybody needs to understand they're not a historical society. <laughs> Although they are becoming that more and more, but they are mm-hmm. basically just, they're enthusiasts that make Lovecraft stuff. And that yeah. was, that was the name for their like uh, uh, live action role playing group when they were younger. Uh, okay, cool. Uh, Andrew Lehman, uh, whenever I think of his voice, I think about being brought to tears by by his voice in um, the uh, Dreams in the Witch House rock opera, uh, which I don't know if you guys have heard that. I know. Uh, I need to see that. <laughs> wonderful. Well, it's it's a it's an audio recording. It's a CD. Okay. A CD uh, or vinyl. You get know, on vinyl, maybe yeah, maybe the, still. The the URL you want to note is Witch House Rocks. Witchhouserocks.com. Yeah. <laughs> it's got like guest performers like um, uh, Bruce Kulick. Uh, from Kiss and Doug Blair, Doug from, Blair Wasp. from Wasp. Um, yeah, and it's just, it's a wonderful, it's actually a great faithful adaptation of the story Dreams in the Witch House, 
but also deals with like Gilman's loss of faith. And it's a beautifully beautiful piece And both Sean Branny and Andrew Lehman. Uh, they produce, they, they helped produce it. Okay. Uh, uh, the main, uh, main producer and director and performer on it is uh, a guy named Mike Dallager, which was also in the HP Lovecraft historical society's, uh, uh, Ogham Waite, uh, CD. If okay. you guys heard that, which is sort of, uh, jazz era tunes that might have played in the Gilman House Lounge during the Shadow over Innsmouth. Uh, yeah, the Lovecraft Historical Society, they make all kinds of wonderful stuff. Yeah. Anyway, more, more movies. What's what's your... You go next. Or are we trading off? Yeah, you go. Mm. <laughs> okay. Um, well, far be it for me after all this talk of Richard Stanley to not say Color Out of Space. I mean, that's a... Uh, that was a revelation, mm-hmm. I think. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just cheat here and just do two at once two films mm-hmm. at once, which is that, uh, you know, The Color Out of Space, Lovecraft considered his best tale. It was his favorite. I uh, thought it did the best job of kind of encapsulating what he was trying to accomplish with a sense of dread. Yes. Um, and there are two, there are uh, several movie adaptations of it, uh, you know, beginning with uh, Die, Monster, Die with Boris Karloff, <laughs> uh, which does a pretty good job with the source material. It's got a really great matte painting, of the blasted heath which is i think the highlight of the movie <laughs> i'll just leave that as that statement um <laughs> but uh and then of course there's uh, the curse uh, or sometimes known as the farm uh, yep. with will whedon and uh john schneider is that right is that the guy that played yeah, i probably get the name wrong but uh, uh the curse is fairly reasonable adaptation of it uh the editing is a little muddled so it, it doesn't I don't think have the effect that it should. Um, but then in, in more recent years, we've had two really wonderful adaptations of the color out space. And these are the two I'm lumping together. Nice. Uh, one called uh, uh, a German one called Die Farbe. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, love, we love that one. Yeah. yeah wonder, wonderful movie. And it's, uh, it's a, a low budget, but very polished affair, uh, black and white, except when it matters, uh, <laughs> adaptation of the color out of space that really takes the color out of space kind of at its word, you know? So it takes, it, it's that year's worth of decay that happens on the farm. Uh, you see it played out in episode, you know, episodically the same way Lovecraft wrote the story where Lamy is sort of like checking in on them and seeing it. But then there's some amazing revelations at the end. It yeah. does change the time period a little bit to sort of World War World War II or the end of World War II. Oh, yeah, post, I believe. Yeah. And, um, but it does a wonderful job. That's directed by uh, Juan Vu and uh, Jan Roth. And uh, if any real Lovecraft fan has got to see Farba, it's just an amazing, amazing movie. Um, and they did so much with so little for that film. It won our best uh, adaptation that year. Nice. Adaptation. Well deserved. And still reigns as one of my absolute favorites. Uh, Richard Stanley's Color Out of Space was... Um, just as just as good for me uh, but a, a 180 degree turn from the pharma you know it's <laughs> exciting it's a family drama you know it's a family drama uh it's much larger budget although when we say big budget we're talking about yes, six, relative <laughs> six million dollars yeah. I mean, to put it into perspective the original poltergeist was a 25 million dollar film back in the 80s right <laughs> so six million bucks is you're still you know you're still making a pretty low budget film at that point. Uh, but it plays as a big budget film. It's got the sound and the light and the wonderful use of colors. 
the wonderful creature design, the practical creature effects. Um, I mean, every dollar of that is on screen, um, including Nick Cage's crazy ass, you know, performance. <laughs> uh, which, if you're going to put him in a Lovecraft film, I mean, it seems like this is this is the one, right? Um, <laughs> uh, but all the other great performances, uh, um, uh, the girl who plays uh, Madeline, Le- Lavinia, Madeline Arthur, Madeline Arthur is great. fantastic, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you know, it's just. It's just such a great look at the story, and ultimately, while it departs in some ways, like the events seem to happen over the course of like a week. Yeah. Maybe it's not even really clear because days kind of blend together in the film, which I think is a beautiful, a beautiful way to present it. Right? Is they don't even know how long this whole thing is going on. Right. Uh, but it's not the year that it takes Lovecraft's story to develop. Yeah. Um, it still man- it manages to get the sense of cosmic dread you know, kind of puts the characters in this position where they can't, it's not just that they can't trust themselves, they can't trust their world, uh, which is such a an integral part of cosmic horror. This idea, you can't trust time, you know, time is fake. You can't mm-hmm. trust space, space is fake. Um, and when you're dealing with something that is so utterly beyond our ken, um, there's not any way for you to stand against it. Um, the idea that you would battle it is 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 just is as alien as the thing you're trying to battle. You know, you just can't. There's no way to do it. Uh, there's no way to get a foothold on that situation. Um, and I think it does that. Color out space. Uh, Richard Stanley does such a great. It, it does does that in such a great way. It kind of gives you those feelings of dread, that from the beginning to the end, you know that this is just they're they're done. You know. And you're just trying to, at that point, you're just trying to see what's happening, you know, how they're done, you mm-hmm. know, and, uh, you know, the wonderful monsters along the way and the wonderful special effects. Um, a lot of people, when it came out, they said, oh, I guess the color out space is magenta. <laughs> uh, and that's partially true, because, you know, if you know anything about magenta, magenta is not even a real color, right? Yep. It, it's not a perceptible light color. And uh what he was trying to do was he was trying to kind of get at things that are at both ends of the color spectrum, you know, the sort of the ultraviolet and the infrared, he was trying to kind of bring those around. And so when you look at the color, when you really actually look at what's on screen, there's a lot of blues and whites and purples and pinks to kind of get this idea that it's something that's beyond our visual spectrum Mm -hmm. while still having to essentially put something on screen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, Juan Vu's Color Out of Space was a revelation to us because we, we primarily watched it because it was free on Prime. So like, oh, I guess we'll give this one a shot. And then after we were done, we we're like, why have we not heard more about this filmmaker? Because he's got some real talent here. Uh, and I think um, when it comes to the curse, I think uh, I speak for James as well when we say our favorite bit of trivia about that was Will Wheaton saying uh, the best thing about that movie was that it gave his sister a job. <laughs> Apparently did not care for that. Um, production uh, whatsoever. No, we uh, we've <laughs> talked to him. So you know, like we mentioned earlier we sell we make and sell T-shirts. So we go around to conventions. So this has actually been a pretty awkward year for us because all the conventions have been yeah basically canceled. Right. Uh, every year we go to San Diego Comic Con. We've been going for gosh, 16, 17 years or something uh, to sell our stuff. Eighteen years. Eighteen years. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, 
uh, very often we still we see Will Whedon there. Will Whedon is is a professionally a Lovecraft fan, and he he buy he would you know pick up stuff from us occasionally. Um, and so, you know, we'd start talking to him. We'd go, well, we also we run this H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival up in Portland. And he would be pretty interested until we mentioned the curse. <laughs> like, hey, we could have you come up. He'd show the curse. And he would just like, like boom, no. like a gate came down. He was like, no, I don't want anything to do with that movie. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to. <laughs> okay. okay, cool. <laughs> you know, but, you know, it's sad because it's sort of the entry point. And, you know, we... Um, you know, Will Whedon's a great guy, but that's the Lovecraft movie he's been in. So we'd obviously want to do something with it, sure. even if he wanted to do like a riff tracks version of it or something like that, <laughs> uh, which we did with uh, F. Paul Wilson and The Keep a couple of years ago. Really? That's um, amazing. So the Keep and F. Paul Wilson did a live snarky commentary over the top of it because he hates it's an adaptation of his novel, The Keep, but he hates it. Uh, he was good sport. So, uh, so what? Uh, so, so get, get another movie. Out. <laughs> oh my god, um, it's so hard. I'm trying to think of films that like people might be able to see well, at home uh, because I'll... there's a lot of like really great adaptations that we've seen at the festival. Um, and then I was like trying to like what, what are the some of the ones that we've seen like on our. Okay, so I'm going to go with an animated one. Okay. I think it was from the 2015 collection that we did. Mm -hmm. So we also do a best of, since 2014, we've been putting out like a best of the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival short film collection for the year. Mm -hmm. Kind of take, based on like audience choice ratings and our judges ratings and also who's available, who who's able to give us the license to do this, um, put together a DVD um, with kind of a top 10 or 11 short films that we showed that year so that people can have kind of a piece of the festival at home. And one year, one year, um, uh, Pikmin's model. Pikmin's model. Mm -hmm. Yes. Sorry. Got to hmm. point. So Pikmin's model is a computer animated piece, but it, he made it look like, um, he really made, it really looks like someone took puppets and like did stop motion with them. Like it's mm -hmm. really nice textured and really well rendered and, the story itself is very faithful to the story, but there's a little twist at the end yeah. um, mm. with Pikmin kind of su suggestion that Pikmin himself is a bit monstrous and um, it's, it's really, really well, well done. Yeah. The voiceover and the voice acting and like the sound, like he uses a lot of sound in his as well as the visual component. They work really nicely together. And it's, it's as, uh because we direct a film festival like this, uh, one of the things that's become apparent over the years is that there's a few stories that filmmakers gravitate to either because it just excites their imagination or because they feel like they can accomplish it on a low budget. Pickman's mm -hmm. Pick model is one of those. And we've seen, you know, 30 adaptations of it or something <laughs> over the years uh, of varying, varying, um, um, aptitudes. Um, yeah, it's always fun to see a good version of Pickman's model, uh, but this one really is a highlight. And um, the important thing here would be for us to have the filmmaker's name at hand. Pablo Angeles. Thank you, Pablo <laughs> Angeles. Yeah. Um, I, I I don't believe you can get our Best of 2015 it's collection anymore. It's sold out. Each mm -hmm. of our yearly DVD and Blu-ray collections are uh, limited edition. Uh, okay. to about that. Uh, basically, we have to make a thousand, so that's the limit. Um, Got it. And so it takes, you know, after a couple of years, they usually sell out. So there's no more 2014 or 2015, but you can still get 2016, 17, 18, and now 19, uh, either on um, 
uh, our website, arkhambazaar.com or uh, on Amazon. Cool. Also. Um, and those are just short film collections. Uh, and there's some great adaptations on there. Uh, this last year, there's a great adaptation of The Outsider, mm. uh, best of 2019. That's one of the best we've seen. Uh, there's also an adaptation of um, The Last Incantation, uh, which is a Clark Ashton Smith story that's really well done. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, so yeah, if you want a sort of a view into what sort of films play at the festival, those DVDs are a great way to, to get at it. Um, I'll mention another movie that um, uh, there was a limit somewhere in your question, but I'm just going to ignore that. Um, <laughs> there, uh, there's a great movie. I don't know if people have seen or even know is based on a Lovecraft story. Uh, maybe people do now, but it's an old, um, uh, uh, it's called, uh, it has a bunch of names, but the main one is Curse of the Crimson Altar. Okay. I've heard, yeah, I've heard of it, but I have not been able to. I, I think it's relatively difficult to get your hands on when it comes to streaming, but I could be wrong about that. It, I've seen it pop up here and there, but I don't think it's anywhere now yeah. to, to stream. But you can get various DVD editions of it. None of them are great. I mean, <laughs> the, um, your best bet is to get a PAL DVD mm-hmm. Uh for some reason, but it's um, uh, sometimes called the Crimson Cult. It's, it's got uh, Boris Karloff, uh, Christopher Lee, Barbara Steele plays Keziah. So it's an adaptation of Dreams of the Witch House. Okay. And uh, Barbara Steele plays uh, the witch Keziah Mason. And it's uh, it's the grooviest Lovecraft okay. film you've ever seen, and I use that word specifically. Um, there are... Uh, uh, there's go-go dancing and, you know, shin-high <laughs> leather boots and miniskirts. There's psychedelic colors or psychedelic drug use. Um, it is a blast. Is it a faithful adaptation of Dreams of the Witch House? I mean, not really. But it is such a fun movie to watch. It's one I go back to frequently. Just, you know, we've got Barbara Steele in uh, painted blue all over. She's in blue makeup. If you look at if you search for Christopher the Crimson Altar, you can see pictures of her in this big gold headdress. And I think it's just cool as hell. You know, it's, um, <laughs> it's, and it's a great way to see how Lovecraft was influencing filmmakers, even when they weren't quite getting Lovecraft. Like the story doesn't really get Lovecraft, uh, but it still presents the, the story in a uh, recognizable way. Yeah, that one, that one goes more of the satanic panic angle. Yes. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, according to JustWatch.com, uh, Curse of the Crimson Altar, as of this recording, is available to stream if you have a membership to Flix Fling or a streaming service I'd never heard of, Night Flight? Never heard of that one before? Oh, Night Flight. That was an old TV show from back in the day. Night Flight. Okay. Um, and but, also... but it's on Blu-ray. It's on Blu-ray from Kino right. Lorber. Okay. okay. And, and also it's a rental or a purchase if, uh, through YouTube or Google Play. So it, it does seem like it is is available, just not a... Just not the easiest one in the world, but that's that's neither here nor there, I suppose. I, I highly recommend it for people, specifically for the people that don't feel like they're the kind of person that's going to watch a movie and go, "Ugh, I just wasted two hours of my life." Like, don't <laughs> if you go if you're if if that's a frequent occurrence for you, I don't recommend. As a Lovecraft fan, I don't recommend watching it. But if you're willing, just for a fun, a fun, crazy, witchy romp with psychedelic drugs, uh, with some dreams, with, with, uh, the basic plot outline of dreams of the witch house. 
I, I think it's a fantastic movie. I, I just love it to death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let, let, yeah, let's do let's do one more round for the both of you, uh, and then maybe James and I can can contribute uh, some yeah. of our thoughts of our, our favorites as well. So I oh, I, I don't know. Like we just showed it last year, but the the case of Charles Dexter Ward was adapted into the Haunted Palace, and at the time, um, that time period, Poe was a big hot property with um, Hammer Films and American International Pictures, and uh, Roger Corman really wanted to make a Lovecraft movie, uh, but the studio marketing was like, no, we got to make it a poem movie. So they slapped on Poe's Haunted mm-hmm. Palace poem at the beginning. And then they, you know, proceed with the the rest of the um, case, of Charles, case of Charles Dexter Ward, a.k.a. Joseph Kerwin, <laughs> a.k.a. Vincent Price, yeah. the dashing yeah. Vincent Price. <laughs> oh, yes. I love that. It's just so lush and the colors and the costumes. And, I mean, it's a costume drama with this under underlying horror possession story. Yeah. Um. And uh, we played it last year because our guest of honor last year was Victoria Price, uh, the daughter of Vincent Price. Okay, cool. And then we also had also had Roger Roger Corman also came out. Awesome. So we had them do instead of doing a Q and A, uh, instead of asking them questions about the Haunted Palace, we actually sat Victoria Price and um, uh, Roger Corman on stage, and they Q and A'd each other. So, nice. <laughs> uh, uh, largely Victoria Price. Asked, you know, uh, talked to uh, Roger about what it was like to work with her father on so many films, so many of the AIP mm-hmm. Poe films, and he had some amazing. And the guy, he was 93 when he came out, and he's got some amazing stories, uh, just right, just right there at the tip of his tongue. You know, <laughs> she would ask, she asked him about, you know, do you have anything about, uh, oh, who's the uh, Peter Lorre? You know, and he had stories about Peter Lorre. He talked about how Peter Lorre and Boris Karloff didn't always get along because, like, Peter Lorre is very, uh, or is it Boris Karloff is very serious about his lines mm-hmm. and knowing his lines, and he was a real professional. But Peter Lorre was sort of like, oh, I'll just wing it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> they were sort of like, as me- as methods go, they were kind of at each other's throats. Yeah. <laughs> it was a lot, of, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Um, I feel like we should uh, we should talk about more independent films, though. Don't you think? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I mean, but I know you mentioned you didn't love the 1970 Dunwich Horror by uh, <laughs> by Daniel Holler, but as you can tell, I'm I'm a fan of the groovy films. Like you get me a little bit of cool 60s 70s vibe. Mm-hmm. Like I, I kind of dig it, and so I love that about the Dunwich Horror. Mm-hmm. But uh, gosh, you know, there are so many. There's so many great, I mean, we're talking specifically about adaptations. Mm-hmm. We've seen so many great adaptations over the year that here's their short films. Mm-hmm. And Lovecraft was primarily a short story author. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, like Poe, they both sort of felt that it was sort of easiest to sustain this effect over a short period of time. If you had to write a novel and sort of sustain this sense of dread or sustain the sense of the uncanny, it, was, it might it'd start to fall apart if, if it sort of, if you couldn't contain it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so some of the best adaptations we've seen aren't features at all. They're short films. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a great one called Vomica, which was on our uh, 2014 disc. You also can't get, but I think you can see it online now. I think it's that is a Lovecraft fans that know the story well, will understand it's an adaptation of rats on the walls. Okay. 
but it's uh, it's pretty loose. You know, if you if you don't really know rats on the walls, you might not you never might not pick up on what's actually happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, what uh, what are some um, other? Great? Oh, John Starzik's the music oh, yeah, on yeah. is a I think one of the best adaptations of that abused story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and when we we all, we also often get music of Arizona adaptations, and it's okay. Uh, we love them when they're great or they do something new, but you you could you can't almost can't do better than seeing John Stryzik's, uh version of it, and that's a uh, sort of a sixteen minute film um, that um, I think you can watch part of it kind of on YouTube, but it's it looks like shit. Uh, <laughs> we're actually we're actually going to be releasing. Uh, uh, Part of what we do also is uh, we do a little bit of film uh, husbandry, uh, preservation, restoration. Uh, so we've got classics DVDs we put out. Our classics volume three uh, is hopefully going to go to press sometime in October uh, after <laughs> the festival. And that'll feature a brand new restoration of Streisick's uh, Music of Eric Zahn. Now, John Streisick, uh, he worked with Stuart Gordon quite a bit. So they, they worked on a, a film called Deathbed. Uh, they worked on a film, the film uh, Stuart Gordon's um, "Stuck." Oh, stuck! Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, John Stryzak used to be a he was a a, a, a writer on uh, "Tales from the Dark Side." Oh, nice. And so several several of those several of the several of your favorite "Tales from the Dark Side" episodes he's responsible for. <laughs> and back in the, for his senior thesis at uh, Chicago, uh, Columbia, in Chicago. Uh, he made the music of Eric Zahn, and it's a beautiful adaptation. So we've we've just had the original 16 millimeter negative scan rescanned, uh, and uh, you know, putting that all. I'm currently restoring that, doing the frame by frame restoration to take out all the scratches and pockmarks and stuff like that. And so hopefully that'll be coming out soon. But you can see a version of it. There's also an old Lurker Films DVD that has an older version of it on mm-hmm. it. That's been sold out forever. So unless you have it already, I don't know how you would get it. <laughs> uh, but that's a great adaptation of Music of Eric Zahn. It really gets it. But one of the other great adaptations of Music of Eric Zahn I, uh, that we've seen is called The Music of Joe Hyaja. I was just going to say that one. Yeah, which is a <laughs> Korean adaptation. Oh. Um, and it's uh, it, it changes it up a little bit. Uh, but it really, it has one of the most effective uh, uh, uses of sound design and and you think music of Eric Zahn of course there's music uh, but you still need you know the music can't, itself can't carry the film you've got to have really great sound design to kind of like I was saying earlier about a razor head to sort of operate on your brain while you're watching and the music of Joe, Joe Hyaja does a great job of just making you panic and by, <laughs> by the time the film is over you want to shut it off and step outside and take a breath because you, while you, you haven't seen anything, you know, the best adaptations of your music of Eric Zahn can't show you what's outside the window. Yeah, of course. Right. Um, because, I mean, you know, we could show you a star field. Is that scary? Maybe, depending <laughs> on where you're coming from. But show you a star field, or we can show you, as Lovecraft describes it, silhouettes of dancers, right? So there's like this notion of like dancing women. And John Streisick does that in his version a little bit. Uh, but mostly they're sort of lights and kaleidoscope figures and things like that. Music of Joe Hage doesn't doesn't try. Mm-hmm. Uh, the character sees it. You see the character see it. Uh, it doesn't show you what's outside the window. 
but while you're focused on the character, it's 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 blowing your brain with the sound design, and it's uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful film. It's a, that one is actually you might be able to see that on YouTube. It's also on one of our classics collections, uh, Classics cool. Volume One, right? Uh, which you can get on DVD, and that's uh, if you've ever wanted to see a Korean version of the music of Eric Zahn, that's absolutely wonderful. I, I am fascinated, and I mean this stuff too. The the uh, links to the classics and to the 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 uh, short film collections also will be in the show notes. So if you're listening to this, you'll be able to find it in there. Um, so James and I have spent a lot of time obviously talking about these, so I won't go into too much detail. But I'll say if I had to limit it down to three, also Gwen, like you, in no particular order except number one. Um, I'm going to do. I'm going to also do what Brian did, Stanley's and Juan Vu's Color Out of Space. I'm going to kind of uh, put them together because one was a delightful surprise and the other one was the culmination of something we had been waiting for for such a long time. Uh, if you go back and listen to that episode, James was a bigger fan than I was, but as I've gotten space from it, I've been more curious. Like, yeah, I should go back and, and watch that. And now that it's on Shutter, I will probably do so in in the near future. Um, my favorite one, I'll say is probably From Beyond. Stuart Gordon's From Beyond, I think, is my favorite adaptation because of just um, how it still does adhere to a lot of Lovecraftian themes or what I respond to from a Lovecraftian thing. And also just the impressiveness of taking basically what was, what, a four-page short story and not only make it into a feature, but one that is coherent and that has character development. And we mentioned Barbara Crampton, or Crampton, sorry, um, not a character in the source material, adds it adds it to it and gives her actually agency because one of the things James and I have complained about of a lot of H.P. Uh, Lovecraft adaptations like, oh cool, you added a woman and she basically just is there to support a man and that is not the case in From Beyond so I very much appreciated this. I love the way Stuart flips the dynamic between Reanimator, right? You know, yes. Megan Reanimator is sort of very passive but in um, and From Beyond, like she's the boss and I, I really like the way that they do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this one might be a little bit controversial. It's an episode that we've recorded. We have not put it up yet. James, you might laugh at this, but I think the more I think about 1997's Bleeders or Hemoglobin, um, I I don't know. I really, it, it's not a perfect film by any means. It's very grimy and sloppy. Its production quality is not great, but it's, I think it's a pretty solid adaptation. And once again, it like supports... Or, or, or does a, a better job of adhering to those Lovecraftian themes, especially the inescapable uh, destiny and family lineage. And, and James has, has, been a, uh, has been very public about this. It's got a downer of an ending, which I kind of think I like because it's fitting yeah. for that story. So, like, it, it just it's one big gut punch, and then you're like, well, that's Lovecraft for you. <laughs> I, I really I really like that film. Um, we haven't shown it at the festival yet. Uh, Rutger Hauer is in it. Yeah. Um, there's a few little adaptations of Lurking Fear, but I think we're still waiting for the adaptation of the Lurking Fear. There really isn't one yet. Right. Uh, there's one by Full Moon, uh, the Lurking Fear with uh, Ashley Lawrence. That was that was our, our last episode. Was that and we uh, we were not kind to it. <laughs> <laughs> it's got it's got some great monster design. Right, and that's a, a, a C. Courtney Joyner. Joyner, right? Yeah. Um, but it does it does a lot. It it goes in some very weird directions that you kind of wish you kind of wish it maybe stuck a little more. I, I don't have a problem with people changing the story to make a more effective film, 
but it feels a little bit like the changes get in the way of the story in that one, you know. Um, there's another one called Dark Heritage that's very, very low budget, but is worth taking a look at. Uh, but again, I think that that's something like, I kind of hope that that ends up being one of the Richard Stanley three, you know, mm -hmm. that maybe the last one will be. I think everybody's hoping for like Mountains or Cthulhu, but I would really love it to see something like The Lurking Fear. Well, I I think I'm not sure have have either of you um, ever listened to uh, Mick Garris's postmortem podcast? Did you did you listen to the episode with Stanley on it? Because I I seem to and it's been a while since I listened to it, but I think when he mentioned his trilogy, I think he said the next one is a Haunter in the Darkness, and then the third one I think he said was he didn't give many details, but he says it's the one that everyone's expecting, which would lead me to believe that it's going to be the Call of Cthulhu. Um, but I, I'm 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 not sure about that. But uh, and I, I could be making that up or, or misremembering. But uh, that was that. It's a fascinating interview. Everyone should listen to it just in general because he is an, he's a fascinating character. Yeah, um, yeah. Mick Ayers is a great guy. We had him out last year for Portland Horror Film Festival, and he is he's known as sort of the nice guy of horror. I think his production company is Nice Guy Films or something like that. <laughs> and dude. It's a nice guy. He's, <laughs> nice yeah. <laughs> uh, so James, yeah. What are, what 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 would you say? Are your three? I mean, it's kind of funny. You kind of took a bunch of mine already. Like from Beyond is always going to be up there. The older I get, you know, Reanimator being the one that got me into like Lovecraft adaptations as a young boy. But from Beyond nails it better, and it nails like the. You know, it's a mixture of the comedy, and but it's not as much. It's not as funny, and that's what I love about it. It's, like, dark, and it ends on such a great downer. And, like, we talk about it. Downer endings are perfect in a Lovecraft world. Um, both Color Out of Spaces that we talk, you know, the Wan Vu one, the Stanley one are, like, tops tops to me. And, um, I mean, I'm going to go, you know, say Andrew Lehman's Call of Cthulhu. Like, I, I think... That's one of my prized DVDs that when I worked at um, Best Buy many years ago, we randomly got that in, just one copy. And I was just like, oh, I've never heard of this version before. Let me buy it. And then not realizing it was a silent film made to look like the 20s and stuff. And I just fell in love with it. It was a film that I would show to so many friends. And sadly, most of them didn't get my love for it. They're like... You love to, you love this, but again, it's the sad sad part is a lot of a lot of people don't like silent films, which is another thing that boggles my mind. Or if it's black and white, where's the color? Okay, you know what? <laughs> I, I, I you know that, that's why most of those people I'm not friends with anymore. So it kind of tells you something. <laughs> <laughs> but those off the top of my head, those are three. But like, I can't I can't wait to cover it with you, Jim. That's why, because you know, I think you, yeah. And, and I've never seen uh, Layman's uh, uh, Whisper in Darkness. Or, uh, Me either. The, uh, is it Whisper in Darkness? Is that what it's... Yeah. 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 I've never seen that one either. That I want to see that. And and I'll go on a limb. Like, I mean, we didn't mention it, but um, the record company, Cadavera Records, mm -hmm. does some amazing records with... That's a lot of them with Andrew Lehman yeah. reading these stories. So, Jim, I'm, I'm going to have to try to find you one. I'll get you a gift to so. Christmas yeah. is, is just around the corner, James. It is. I know. I know. It I is. Sadly, two, two of those now. Well, one one has Andrew Lehman reading it. The other one is, uh, oh, geez, I forget. Is it the rats? 
picture in the house or something like that that mm-hmm. I think is somebody else. But it's they're both Cadabra records, and uh, yeah. I don't have a record player. So I don't, know, I, don't know, I don't know what I'm doing with those. I, one, one of these days, you know, but, you know, as a Lovecraft fan, and uh, Sandy Peterson said this a few years, uh, a few years ago, he came out as a guest of ours and the local paper interviewed him. And he said, the thing about Lovecraft is that when you, when you discover Lovecraft, if you've got whatever it takes to make you a Lovecraft fan, um, it's like an infection that gets in your brain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that you can't just get rid of. You can't like decide to not like Lovecraft after that. You can't decide to not like his works. Or, and at that point, it's really even hard to be just a general horror fan. Like you kind of want everything to be Lovecraftian at that point. <laughs> um, and I, I've always felt that's very true. It is. It's, it's something that gets in your brain. It kind of opens your pineal gland and your third eye, right? <laughs> everything starts to look Lovecraftian, or you want everything to be Lovecraft. As a result, like. If there's something like if I if I'm out and I see something that's related to Lovecraft, I mean I come home with it, you know. I, yep, yep. I have a choice, <laughs> and it may be junk, and it may be terrible, um, maybe not fun and boring, and it may have nothing to do with H.P. Lovecraft, but the fact that it has his name on it means that I own it, and uh, <laughs> for better or worse, you know. And there's there's that immediate connection too like i mean gwen i love your shirt the miskatonic university shirt and so like i've i've got one that's um that's just a uh, you know dagon cthulhu 2020 and if if someone sees me and they recognize the shirt, like i've got an immediate kinship with you because you know what this is all about kind of a yeah. thing and that's that's what's great about the horror community in general but also this niche community of of uh hp lovecraft but we We've we've uh, we've been talking to you guys for a while. We really appreciate your time. Um, I got one final question for you, but before that, uh, I want you to put anything out there. How can people find out more about the festival? How can people follow the stuff that you're doing? Just anything and everything. By all means, put it out there. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, Facebook and Instagram is HPL Film Festival. Um, Twitter is at HPLFF. Uh, the festival website is HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Oh, that's totally wrong. HPLFilmFestival.com. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I never, it's like when you don't know your own phone number because it's just yeah. on your phone. Exactly. Like, Auto fills on my Yeah, we type browser. H and we get yeah. HPLFilmFestival.com. Yeah. Or you can just Google search HP Lovecraft Film Festival and you'll find all of it. Or, or you can go to HPLFF.com right. and that'll, that'll do it also. Right. Thank you. This film festival is once again October 1st through October 4th. Um, for uh, In terms of for us, you can always find us on castingcthulhu.podbean.com, but also anywhere you get podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, uh, or there's another one that I'm forgetting, Spotify. Spotify. We, are on, we are on Spotify now as well. Um, follow us on Twitter at castcthulhu and facebook.com slash castofcthulhu. But I promised one more question before we let you go. This may be a tough one. Once again, kill your darlings or kill your children. If you have a choice between Guillermo del Toro or um, Alan Moore coming to your festival, which one do you choose and why? I mean, I'm gonna. Uh, that is a hard. That is a hard one. Um, I'm gonna say Guillermo, though. I think you know, in terms of, he seems like a fun dude, right? Yeah, fun dude. Got a fun house. He's got a great collection. I don't know if you guys have seen we. At uh, LACMA in, uh, in LA a couple of years ago, we went to Science Collection and it's amazing. Um, 
Yeah, I think and that he's a I think, filmmaker. and he's a filmmaker. So I I think that he would just be a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I love Alan Moore. I love his work, but this is a guy who's had his name removed from movies. Uh, <laughs> uh, but not that I can argue with his reasoning uh, <laughs> for, for for those movies. But uh, I think I think Guillermo, and you know, he just seems like a fun dude, and I've been a fan of his for a long time. I agree. Yeah, um, he. Um, I, I guess we can talk about it now, but he, you know, since it, since it's well past, um, he was actually going to come last year, uh, just to just to watch uh, the Color Out Space with Richard Stanley, but um, something got in the way and he ended up not making it. But we had people were very excited because we had a we had a reserved sign on one of the seats. That uh, there weren't supposed to be names on it, but one of our volunteers put his name on it. <laughs> <laughs> so told people around there was like, "Is Caramel Del Toro gonna sit right here?" <laughs> he didn't, and he he just ended up not being able to make it at the last minute because he was important. Yeah, yeah. Cage's son and his friend and his mom came. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, we had a little bit of a Nick Cage family here. For the, for the screen, not Nick Cage himself. There was talk because Nick Cage was filming a film, an independent film here in Portland about a a pig and a he plays a pig farmer ex girlfriend and uh, it sounds very it sounds awesome and I, I don't know I mean, what's I happening it with it but, yeah but he was there was talk that maybe he could come in like the side door for a quick Q and A but didn't it didn't happen so. I, I think, you know, having, I, I think definitely, I think Guillermo del Toro is the guy we would love to see at the film festival. Alan Moore is a guy that I think I would love to have a, uh, an unlimited amount of time to drink coffee with. I think that's, mm-hmm. you know, just to talk, just to talk about, because I love his esotericism. Uh, but I think, yeah, if we're going to get somebody at the film festival, yeah, let's hope Guillermo can make it one of these days. <laughs> So things you get worried when somebody wins an Oscar. You're like, well, that's it. He's never coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we we can all hold out hope that uh, he eventually still gets to make his at the Mountains of Madness adaptation. And maybe that's when he will finally uh, come by. Will be to present that. But um, yeah, Gwen and Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. This was uh, by far our longest episode, and I think well <laughs> worth it. So thank you yes. both for joining us. 